This is Swampside Chats, the podcast where communists sit down to shoot the shit about current events, history, political economy, and theory. This time, we read 28 Theses on Class Society by Friends of the Classless Society from the first issue of Cosmoprolet Journal from 2007. Come take a trip down memory lane to a simpler time when Rick Rowling was fresh and critical communist theory was kind of a weird thing to be into. Back in the saddle. All right. How you doing, Jake? Um, I have fucking Rick Astley stuck in my head. It's fucking pissing me off. So, so you're doing fucking terribly. Okay, is it the famous song or is it some obscure? Yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah. What else would it be? I, I'm kind of curious. I've never heard another Rick Astley song, actually. Yeah. Yeah, he's a one-hit wonder. I mean, that's, you know. But I, I'm just curious what it even sounds like. Yeah, how many Chumbawamba songs do you know? <laughs> I've actually heard a fair amount of Chumbawamba because they're anarcho-punks. That's probably a bad example. They're the only one that, you know, if you're a leftist, you might have heard a bunch of this. Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> they, they were signed to Cross Records. Of All right, course. how about the Baja Men? How many Baja Men songs do you know? <laughs> one. I was at the beach recently in Asbury Park, New Jersey, and I didn't know this was going to happen, but Papa Roach was playing. And so <laughs> I could still hear... Uh, the Papa Roach. What, what's the famous Papa Roach song? <laughs> Last Resort. Yep. Cut, no, it was Cut Me to Pieces. It's the one. Is it called something like Cut Me to Pieces? It's Cut My Life into Pieces. Yeah. This is my last resort. Oh, that I'm is the same song. called Last okay. Resort. Um, that's, yeah, that's all, it all leads back. So I'm losing my sight, losing my mind. So that was, um, yeah. that was playing while I was, I was just trying to enjoy the ocean. But at the Stone Pony, they had them outside. So I had to fucking, <laughs> I was trying to just enjoy a peaceful ocean scene. And it was just like, cut my life into pieces. I was like, please do. That's... <laughs> yeah, that's... Just for breaching out of sight. What a beautiful culture we yeah. have. <laughs> that's, that's all I'm saying. So when Friends of the Classless Society is like, hey... Actually, if proles, you know, gain the consciousness that they help create the world, that might very well fill them with shame, not pride. <laughs> Just don't play that shit at the beach. <laughs> the fuck is wrong with you? I mean, where else does it belong? Just a little further into the ocean. In like a parking lot. 1999 MTV Spring Break. That's where it belongs. And you know what? Once that moment is passed, those people, they are surplus rock stars. What are you going to do with them, no, Jake? No, I mean, I mean look, the pe- those people are adults now, and they have to buy crank at the, in a Walmart parking lot. And that's something, <laughs> that's where you play that. It's a rite of passage, I suppose. Yeah. All right, let's get started. So, this is another, like, not one step back. Not one step back. Cosmo Prolet is the person's name, but I guess that's also the name of the publication. The username of the person in our chat. Thank you, Cosmo Prolet. Let's just be clear. I don't think Cosmo Prolet is written on this this person's birth certificate. Yeah, yeah I mean, I'm gonna yeah. go ahead and assume not. But Cosmo Prolet is like a they're like a group of other groups in, in Germany, and one of the groups is Friends of the Classless Society, or in German. Freunde nennen Freunde der Klassenschlafengeschlacht. Like yeah, that. that was excellent. Just, I've been practicing. That's who wrote this in particular in the journal Cosmoprolet. To our six German viewers, we're not sorry. 
Danke. So when did this come out? Does this come out in 2007, it looks like? Yeah, looks like 2007. It's got 2007 vibes. It's written like it was written in the 70s to me. Oh, no, I mean, well, there's allusions to, like, the multitude and that kind of stuff, but, I mean, it might as well have been written in the 70s, I mean. I think, ultimately, like, if you're trying to, like, typologize these sorts of texts, this does hold on to some things that the communizers that we're used to dealing with have rejected and, you know, have cast into the dustbin of history. So it does read, like, 70s ultra-lefts, even though it's, you know through the examples here, clearly not. I think one of the points of this is, you know, where in the sect movement of today does this lie versus communizers, you know, and where's endnotes in that, that kind of thing. Yeah, I'm not really sure. One thing reading this, I think I've changed in some ways over the years, and I guess I don't feel like I have as much patience for this kind of, like, maybe Marxese isn't the right word, but communese, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. Just kind of like talking around thing i wish they would kind of like speak a little more plainly in some places i don't know if it was too terminological for me as much but this piece really reminded me of why i don't find left communism a solution to the crisis of marxism today as far as the style i would say yes it's definitely a sort of ponderous marxist style but it is not what I'm used to from communizers. At least the academic end of communizers, I'm used to the Louis Althusser kind of critical theory tradition, you know, run through the post-structuralists. And you got kind of that viewpoint magazine style that is all of the intellectual domination of, like, the post-war CPs with, you know, the last, like, 30 years of social capital. Whereas with this, it reads a little bit more like pamphlet brain kind of intellectualese. Mm -hmm. Like, for this milieu, this is relatively clear, mm -hmm. which is so dismal. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, uh -huh. I too, you know, was sort of hungering over, like, the lack of clarity in a lot of these things. I wondered sometimes if it was translation. But for communizers, they're relatively clear. So clear as to make me question, are they really? <laughs> Like, you know, I've tried to, like, look into this distinction between the left and, you know, the, the classical left comms and the ultra left and the communizing position or whatever. Like, I've, I've tried to, like, take that on and try to, you know, find the tiny little differences between these positions. But I don't know. There's something about this stuff that does get terribly vague. I could, you know, blame it on the Hegelian tradition or whatever. I don't really care where it comes from. But... You can tell that they've made an effort to try to make this readable. And, mm -hmm. you know, the fact that it's not particularly, you know, sometimes, like... Yeah. Is, um, I feel like they've taken steps to try to make this, like, something that, with a reasonable, like, level of education and not being familiar with the tradition, front to back, you could make sense of. Yeah, I mean, they want it to be accessible. They translated it into English, which is, you know, not everything on this website is. Most of that, most of it looks like it's in German, so... It's just, you know, credit where credit's due. They don't write like wizards, totally. Like, they write like Marxists, but, you know, we all have our flaws, you know? Mm -hmm. <laughs> some of these articles on here look pretty good. You know, you got uh, the Islamic State of Materialist Analysis. It's from 2017. Yeah. That actually sounds fun. Yeah. yeah. Lots of stuff about the Arab Spring, too. 
at least in their English section. Anyway. They wrote a piece that EndNotes reblogged um, about communization and its theorists. That was pretty hot fire. And again, reinforced the notion that Friends of the Classless Society, they have a bit more of an ultra-left sort of like loyalty to historical agency that even though it didn't express itself, there was something there, which I don't know. I don't know. It, it maybe it's um, more of a vice than a virtue that they hold on to this. If there is like, you know, a hopeful research agenda that comes out of, you know, Marxism at all, you know, you have to look at those moments as being like not totally determined in advance. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, there were, listen, there were reasons even 1914 SPD could have made different decisions than it would have. And there were people who were not interested, for example, in, Lexi, we've talked about Mm -hmm, this. There were people who even, they had lost so much sight of why the reasoning for this even was, right? But they thought on the eve of voting for war credits, there was a faction that dissented because, well, we made a promise a long time ago not to give the state one penny. Mm -hmm. You know, and this is funding for the state. They even probably believed this idea. Yeah. Okay, you know, this is World War One. This is a war for national defense. But that anti-state brain bug <laughs> was still there because it was in their interests. If they had actually it really was. followed the thing that tied them to the workers' movement initially. Right. This is kind of some of where I get into yeah. why I feel like this piece over-attributes problems to the workers movement because if you look at what the spd did for example in voting for war credits it was undermining the basis of their connection to the workers movement initially Mm. and so they didn't even understand why but they were like ah there's something about our reason for being that is threatened (laughs) by doing this and that lost right that lost out that opinion lost out and the spd even becomes kind of the slave driver of war production during the period, which of course means they then can't argue anything about, oh, we brought the war too far during Weimar because they were the ones who were cracking the whip about it. But that kind of just goes to show that from a certain perspective, the workers' movement as a social basis provided an interest in doing things that the, you, know, you can call them the betrayers if you want didn't do. Even though, in a way, you know, if there's going to be successful pushback to communization in terms of Marxist theory, you know, some of these, like, ultra-lefty positions that are very close will probably be useful and come in handy. But, yeah, on the other hand, they're too willing to sacrifice the historic agency that, you know, inconveniently took the form of old-school German social democracy, which was part of why communization chased me into you know, Kautskyism and being interested in the SP day and being interested in, you know, the things that the Bolsheviks picked up from the Second International. And there were decision points there, just like there were in the Russian Revolution. And in order to not, like, just discredit the whole thing as, as hopeless, you know, and to, you know, essentially agree with enemies of, of the revolutions, you know, <laughs> you have to do a lot of excavation into these historic impasses, which is the opposite conclusion that most of the communizers seem to come to, right? That, oh, well, fuck. You know, what's the point of even playing these things out? I still, you know, have the urge, and especially after reading this, to respond 
to communizers in a Marxist way that, you know, isn't really summed up by Kautskyism or Leninism or, you know, whatever tendencies there are. Or even anti-Leninism, yeah, for that no, matter. Yeah, that's that's not, like, my main, like, axe to grind. Like, again, these communizers, they're rejecting the whole concept of a lower stage of socialism. Like, because they take on the Leninist idea of what the lower stage of socialism is, essentially. You know, they sh- share too many assumptions with Leninists. The communizers are better about this, and I keep saying it as if they're not communizers. Maybe there should be a different word for what I mean. You know? <laughs> But it's not a full break from political, like, Marxism. You know, whether that's a vice or a virtue, I think it's descriptively less true of this than of theory communist or of endnotes and that kind of that stuff. Yeah, I would, I would agree, though. I would agree this is closer to 20th century Marxism than endnotes. Which, endnotes is, you know, Bakuninism with... Um, Kaczynski characteristics, as we were saying. There's no trace of primitivism here, really. I I think there is a kind of real sense of, you know, modernity was not well played, but maybe we could have done it differently. They like the operismo response to technology because this piece argues for thinking in terms of forces and relations of production. It doesn't want you to think in terms of, like, total technological determinism where... Uh, socialism is guaranteed by the productive forces. It doesn't want you to just take on capitalist technology as is, as being, you know, just here it is, the productive apparatus that we needed. All we need to do is change the management and there we go. Yeah. It has a sense of like, look, sometimes technology is, you know, structuring our domination and that we need to like kind of get rid of shit like that. Mm -hmm. That, you know, Luddite tendency in the operismo, like, workerist movement, is, you know, where this piece, like, ends up. Which, like, if that's not primitivist, which I think, you know, there's overlap, right? Because there's, you know, a little smashy involved here. (laughs) (laughs) But I think that's kind of legit. I don't think that that's that crazy. So right there you have, again, it's a moderate position. It's not a crazy position. It doesn't go full Pol Pot. It doesn't go full Kaczynski. It seeds that point to the to the workeress, which, you know, they had a little streak of romantic anti-modernity in them. They did. A lot of them were Stalinists, you know, <laughs> that, that sort of broke off from the party. I mean, but it doesn't really go anywhere either. You know what I mean? I don't know. At least they went full Pol Pot. It's like, okay, that's where they're at, you know. <laughs> I get it. These are like provisional theses or whatever. This is just kind of the starting point of their conversation. But it's like, okay, I mean... Some good points in here, some vague stiff. I don't know. I wasn't in love with this. I didn't totally hate it either. Yeah, same. I've seen this kind of argument before. So wait, why don't we talk about Thesis 1? I'm going to read Thesis 1, okay? Yeah, that one doesn't seem too bad. Let's do it. So, quote, The provisional result of the history of capital in its advanced zones presents itself as a classless class society in which the old workers' milieu has been dissolved into a generalized wage dependency. Everywhere, proletarianized individuals, nowhere, the proletariat. Not as a recognizable group of people, and certainly not as a collective actor, as the negative, disruptive side of society. Sporadic labor conflicts do not turn into class struggles in which the future of society is at stake, since the old proletarian movement has been absorbed without a trace into the dominant order, and a new movement is not in sight. 
But where's the lie, though? You know? That second part is very important because the defense of unions, and again, I know that there's a later thesis that talks about like the employer's offensive. So whatever glowing thoughts they have about the 70s, they don't extend it exactly to now, in part because of what happens to unions. And they take a, what looks to be here, you know, the communizer position, right? Like, you know, if these things were ever vehicles of class politics, it was a sort of nationalist hegemony. And now that it's gone, it's not coming back. That's the basic, like, communizer position. It's gone, but, you know, good, whatever. Like, <laughs> mm-hmm. I don't know. It's the good whatever part that this piece has ambivalence on, inconsistency on, and therefore a little spark of Marxian virtue there, because you shouldn't be totally resigned to that in a, in a basic way. I actually don't accept this idea that the proletariat has kind of quote-unquote gone away. Um, I don't think they do. That's the sense I got from... You know, everywhere proletarianized individual, nowhere the proletariat, not as a recognizable group of people and certainly not as a collective actor as the negative disruptive side of society. I would disagree with that statement. If you define like proletarianized individuals as a generalized wage dependency that exists, but the proletariat as like a world historic force has lost its like direct agency. Yeah, as a collective actor, I find that hard to refute. I think you can still examine what the proletariat is doing without trade unions and mass parties. It's just that this kind of analysis seems threatening to contemporary Marxists because they're working within a tradition that was a structuring element of the 20th century post-World War II global order. I don't think you can level that at ultra-lefts. Ultra-lefts are obsessed with activity that spills outside of those borders. And yes, their whole framework is inside of those borders, but they are looking for specifically things outside of those boundaries. The ultra-left is least vulnerable to this criticism in the entire Marxist canon. I disagree, but you know when, when is this from? 2007? Okay, so there wasn't, there wasn't that much going on, because I think um, you have the collapse of... You have, you have the beginnings of the collapse of bourgeois politics when you have the uh, end of the Cold War, because you know, there's nothing to define yourself against. But the war on terror you know, gives them, you know, think about 9-11, right? It's this um, huge event, but it really only gives them another decade or so of juice. And now that has has kind of started unfurling as well. Um, But but I guess 2007, you are still in that to an extent. But I, I think that recent years have given us a little bit of a different understanding when it comes to stirrings of collective struggle, right? I mean, these are things that tend to get dismissed as pre-political or something like that. You know, so never mind 15M in Spain, never mind 1.5 million Hong Kong residents, a.k.a. CIA spooks, never mind the (laughs) yellow vests, even though they humble Macron in a couple months, which is more than the French left has done in decades, right? Never mind the Arab Spring, And, you know, when you bring up the Arab Spring, people point to the limitations of these movements. But the alternative today isn't socialist political command over the proletariat. It's business as usual. You know, it's it's easy to point to a compromise that the ruling class had to make as a result of social pressure, something like the military takeover in Egypt. Right. And talking about the pointlessness of, quote unquote, so-called spontaneous activities 
as though the new status quo is not a sharper contradiction, and as though the Arab world hasn't already erupted again in Algeria, Jordan, Lebanon, Libya, Morocco, Tunisia, especially Sudan. You you deposed somebody in Sudan recently. So, I don't know, I think it's maybe it's more convenient for the left to have a proletariat that doesn't exist than to have one acquiring a sense of itself in its own kind of staccato way, which is what I think is what's really going on. I want to live in that world, I mean. That's an optimistic <laughs> way to look at it, and I hope that I acquire that belief in an evidence-based way. That sounds like a much better outlook than the one I have, and I, I should prefer it. Yeah, I don't know. I'm guess I'm much more pessimistic about these things. I've just seen the tides go in and out, and this is how the proletariat fights back. And I'm, you know, willing to grant the international proletariat status to these, like, spasms, even though it's not articulated well. You know what? We've been kicked in the head so much. Like, it's just going to come out however it's going to fucking come out. Like, I get that. It's early. It's early, Lexi. I'm not interested in, in policing that, you know, but, like, they go away, and then for years, the proletariat, as a collective actor... Is defenseless. But but these see these social antagonisms that they spring out of don't go away. You know, people were ready to say, you know, the Arab Spring, that didn't work, etc. etc. And already the Arab world is in chaos again. Okay, but I just look what happened in Egypt for years. That's why there was I, I mean Ask Derek what that was like. But was that compromise that the ruling class had to make, was that a more or less stable relationship to society than the Mubarak regime. I would say a less stable and more problematic for long-term rule than Mubarak. The antagonism here is not between, you know, so-called spontaneous action and, you know, coherent, you know, ideologically socialist movements. It's been it's been either, you know, this kind of movement of the squares shit or nothing. Or nothing, period. Right. I quite get that. The working class has its back up against the wall. That's like a bad thing to be. That's like a bad position to be in, though. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, you know, I, I definitely see problems in international political economy and, the, you know, for example, the separation of circulatory and productive labor, things like that. You know, this, this piece actually, I think, goes into – it tries to explain why there isn't worker movement in a way that so it's arguing against the kind of colonialist they say that international exploitation of the periphery is you know one of the reasons that workers in the west are so comfortable and then they don't resist capitalism or some that that's kind of how they try to explain it i do think international political economy matters but it matters in the sense that you know the people producing things and the people circulating those commodities don't have a very easy way to relate their interests to each other. And so if one sector goes on strike, then you let the, you know, the bourgeoisie leverages the other sectors because they're isolated. But I don't think that, you know, means that, you know, workers in the West are, you know, uh, super privileged or something like that. But at the same time, I actually think that the colonialism explanation is closer to the truth than what this piece is trying to say, which is something like about technological advances bringing greater productivity, causing the social stock of goods that workers receive to be devalued without their wages going down or something like that. I, I was trying to make sense of it. This is like thesis three. Did you write any notes on that? 
I did. Thesis three stands to reason. It's the major Marxist way of dealing with how, you know, capital intensive production has become in the core. And, you know, classically speaking, if you embed a bunch of dead labor and constant capital, yeah, you can get like shit tons of value out from just a little bit of work. I was actually reading recently something from the um, the Fed chairman about the, um, you know, he's speculating about what what's the next financial crisis going to be like for us. And a lot of this comes out in coded language or whatever. But there was some material in there showing capitalists today have some anxiety over the fact that technological advances haven't brought the level of opportunity, or even productivity advances, mm-hmm. haven't brought the level of opportunity for profit that they were anticipating. Right. But you have to appreciate that this is coming up in, in an argument with third worldists and Maoists like value theorists that are claiming yeah. the entire working class lifestyle of, you know, the imperial core was purely on the backs of value exploited from third world workers. So if you want to talk about people that are contemptuous right. of the, of you know the average you know, Joe six pack in you know American worker or something, you know that's the claim that's being argued against in thesis three. Yeah, right. Whereas you know the West independently delivered, you know not independently. That's bullshit. But the West delivered a lot of its gains right off the process of industrialization and proletarianization in the same way that a lot of the periphery is now gaining its growth off the process of industrialization and proletarianization. And so, you know, the the periphery countries still have something to point to in terms of growth, quote unquote. The core countries don't have, you know, you hear stuff about we're in a low growth future or something like that. I'm not saying there's no falling rate of profit. <laughs> in thesis three, they, they present this idea of either this technological advance has done what's going on now or colonialism did it. I don't think it's really either. But I think you're right. I think you're right that there's a falling there's a pretty simple falling rate of profit type explanation here actually. I would Is that what you were saying? Well, I'm just saying that like what is being said here is coming from an orthodox value theory perspective and I am inferring that your interpretation is probably not what they're saying because they would also believe in a falling rate of profit, right? That they also believe in a process of diminishing returns that technological growth can't necessarily get you out of. Right. I guess I'm just saying in thesis three, they seem to have this idea that, you know, workers are materially comfortable in the West and that's because of technological advance. As opposed to super exploitation of the colonies, which is a way of politically pitting, you know, different sections of the working class against each other in a way that, you know, like it has to be said that there is a sort of common sense basis for organizing workers that are, you know, in your country or like you or some kind of just going along with the homogenizing forces of nationalism. Like you grow up in a nation state, that stuff is in the air. Like, it's it's not contemptuous to say that. Well, and, and also when you're growing up in a nation state that is still in the process of nation state formation. And that's not even incidental to the workers' movement. Like, again, one of the strong claims of communization is that, look, sorry, chief, the workers' movement was actually about nation building and that nations dispense with it as soon as they could. The historic function is what it actually did. It's a deep cut. 
not one I particularly agree with, but I see what it's you're saying. It's a consistent argument. I mean, it, con- it conflates the workers' movement with state responses to it in a very one-to-one way. Sure, but, like, in this piece, this piece, I think... And what I like about inconsistent communizers, I mean, they might be insulted for me to say, oh, these people aren't really communizers. They're more like ultra-left. But I kind of mean it, like, as a compliment. You know, they're still trying to preserve some sense that there was workers' agency. And this is what, like, theory communists, like, mocks Gilles Duvet for. It's like, oh, yeah, I mean, like, you know, you're saying the proletariat didn't do communism because the proletariat didn't do communism. And, you know, basically, yeah, like, that's not that dumb. Like, agency at some point is not reducible. People have, like, choices, and there's, like, a payoff matrix and whatever. But, you know, real human choices are pretty, they're difficult to, like, map out. There were, like, real historic choices that the proletariat had. I don't know. I mean, when you even when you look at the Russian Revolution, right? I mean, if you were a proletarian interested in communism, it would be sensible to support the Bolsheviks at a certain point. And yet, the outcome we got is the outcome we got. And that that has nothing to do with proletarians really kind of betraying the historic mission of communism or anything like that. And so then you have to look at the political leadership, I think. Well, right. And that's where I sort of depart from what's being said here. But for them, you know, the ultimate agency, the ultimate subjectivity, the thing they admire about Leninism is actually the voluntarism. It said at the end, it's just a class voluntarism. And that's where you get like the, you know, general just the ultra lefty, like autonomy kind of feel here. The main thing that they take away from the Situationists and the Italian workerists. You know, this is like a radical break with the way things are. That's where the communization people find their roots in the ultra-left, is is taking that to the nth degree, arguably beyond the constraints of, you know, Marxist politics. I think they also, the communizationists, there's, there's still this, um, I don't really get a, a love for the proletariat from them in a, in a strange way that, you know, for the people who are fetishizing the kind of spontaneism that they are, there's still this sense of what a bunch of dupes. You think so? That's the thing about accepting the rationality of the certain, like, class compromises is they're not stupid. <laughs> I mean, the proletariat can be duped. Like, it can't Well, happen. yeah, I agree with that. But I would, I would go as far as to say that social democracy was not representative not just that it was a clever trick, but that it wasn't representative. So you mean substantively like representative, because descriptively, it was literally a form of representation in a mm-hmm. way that you don't always get. Like, right? Sure. Like, and and sure. so I know what you mean, but the fact is, you know, when you think about, you know, workers' representation government, there's, you know, two forms, right? There is trade union lobbying or there's worker states. <laughs> Okay, <laughs> that attempt to represent, right? And I, yeah, I think we can all agree that these things don't always represent workers' interests, but these are the forms of representation, like that that existed, and like representation in the twentieth century, in, in, yeah, in the twentieth century. And again, this this piece is doing a good ultra left move. Representation, as such, is an attempt to you know defer agency in a way. And there needs to be some, you know, something more radical than that going on. You know, I think that's a perfectly like legit point. It's being made here. Now, what the fuck that means 
is not going to be solved in a sort of Hegelian, like, post-ultra-left, like, critical theory circle, you know? There's an interesting difference between Marxese and Marxistes, because I find when I'm reading Marx, right, there's maybe a lot of complexity that leads to precision, but then with Marxists, I, I don't necessarily find it to be the same, you know, you uncover the complexity and find extra precision and detail, maybe you just find mystification. And I think that maybe what Jake was getting at was that when you clear some of the terminology out, there is some contradiction and mystification here. It's not always clear kind of like what they mean by proletariat necessarily. Mm -hmm. Well, they seem to go back and forth. I picked up a kind of simultaneous, like, gosh, we just want the proletariat back. And also, in the other talking out the other side of their mouths, I was waiting for them to call the proletariat welfare queens. I mean, the way they talked about the contemporary proletariat was like, you know, a bunch of privileged fucks because, you know, social democracy is portrayed as this unambiguous victory for the workers' movement rather than kind of a tenuous compromise at best. Yeah. And so they portray the condition of the modern proletarian to the extent they believe it exists, as kind of rosy in a way that, that almost speaks to not knowing that many proletarians. Maybe this is Germany, you know, because this is what they're writing out of, you know. And I could see this more maybe about, like, the particular form of, like, Western European social democracy. You know, there's, there's parts of this just to, add, like, absolutely make no sense in the United States. There was a stronger social democracy in, in the 20th century in Germany than in the United States, for sure. But they really still, I can't imagine even in Germany, that it was this worker's paradise they advance, basically. You know, because yeah. they really portray it as in the material interests of proletarians in this kind of uncomplicated way to do social democracy. And, I mean, there were, there were incentives, for sure, but it's made uncomplicated. It's like, you see how they talk about, like, FDR's New Deal and how that was, like, that was, like, a triumph of, like, American labor. I mean, kind of. Like, it kind of ignores they were, like, escalating wildcat strikes, like, all throughout his administration and through the war. It also kind of ignores, like, the political campaign to, like, root out communists out of the labor movement following the Second right. World War. So, I don't, I, know. I don't know. They just seem to argue that the working class in the West has been freed from poverty in this way that speaks to not much experience with proletarianization or precarity. I mean, if you're, I guess if you're talking about, like, organized, effective unions, like, yeah, okay, sure. But even at their height, not everybody was unionized, so. I think Grant has, like, a point to the degree that, like, even the height of Western European social democracy isn't, like, maybe as great as people remember it being. However, I don't think this text doesn't have a sense that those standards have been eroded. And that's why it does a weird thing for a text like this. And it makes a defense of unions as brokers, essentially. And I don't think you would ever get this in an ultra-lefty text like this without the context underneath that the power of unions have been severely weakened. So I have sympathy for Grant's like reading here because there's not much material talking about the incredible, immense, massive change that labor unions start to go through. It says that, oh, you know, workers stop joining them. You know, it doesn't talk about the broader structural changes that we're used to from communizers. Well, I, I think throughout the piece, there's this blame placed on the workers movement, which is also equated to proletarians broadly. Thesis 9 in this, for example, basically calls the defeat of the Spartacists in Germany 1919 reliant on, quote, a mass movement, 
which, quote, relied on the support of masses of loyal proletarians. I mean, I just don't know about that. It also says this about Stalinism in Spain, Stalinism crushing the Spanish Revolution. Right. But, you know, did that really did, – did Stalinism, you know, send the Red Army over for – or parts of the Red Army over for logistical support? Yes. Did it inspire masses of proletarians? No. It seems like what inspired more masses of proletarians was the more conventionally Marxist revolutionaries in the, you know, the international brigades and things like that. I personally don't see, you know, the the crushing of the Spanish Revolution as sort of, to put it in vulgar terms, from below or what have you. There is an inconvenient point that I, I think is worth defending. It's something that Marcuse goes into, where he thinks that for a certain historical impasse after the Second World War, there, you know, was a medium-term rationality in the kind of social peace that people found themselves in and essentially suspending the class struggle, having a, a you know, workers-themed class compromise that took various forms. And again, if this text is being written with its head in the 70s, that can kind of make sense. But this is a framework that wants to be able to dispense with the concept of being surprised by betrayal, but all the same places a great emphasis on agency. And so there we have a non-dialectical contradiction. <laughs> we have them turning a blind eye, as many, I guess, classical left comms did, to how impactful a political agent can be in the Russian Revolution. The comments here about, you can't blame the failure of the October Revolution on political action, you know, and there's a broader historical sense in which that's true. But if you want to defend something that ends in what, what's the term here that they use, like a despotism that's like Orwellian or something, really s severe terms, you know, you have to like resolve that. You have to do some legwork to be like, here's why this thing I supported that ended in Orwellian despotism <laughs> was salvageable. I think they are right that the zigzagging of Lenin, theoretically, from, you know, commune state to the un- Democratic Republic was determined by changing social conditions. I actually don't find that that um, hard to believe. But at the same time, there is this weird game they're playing with agency and non-agency that I think is actually still kind of an unresolved theoretical problem in Marxism contemporarily. How much is it the peasantry? How much is it the international balance of power, etc., etc.? But they do recognize how thwarting it was that revolution was isolated to Russia. It's kind of a fair point. I think it's almost an impossible question to answer. I mean, it's more tractable than people make it out to be. This is for political reasons. I don't really want to recapitulate that specific situation. What I mean generally is that there is a problem <laughs> with the kind of view of political consciousness and agency that comes about later in the text with a desire to wash one's hands of betrayal. You know, let's not talk about political betrayal because it's structurally determined, more or less. There's no point in pointing the figure at actors to the point where it expands from that limited version of social democratic rationality that I was talking about, that Marcuse was talking about on One Dimensional Man, that social democracy was just the rational expression of the workers' movement. <laughs> <You know>? mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and so to get to this greater universe of claims that, that Grant is talking about and, and is objecting to. It seems like they need like this kind of like hyper-deterministic like perspective to basically justify what seems like spontaneism to me. 
to them, they just need to see the proletariat as like this X, this variable that will, you know, somehow deus ex machina just like turn up to like create communism. These guys are communizers, right? I notice they quote like other people, but they seem to be like, we need basically like extension and communization and the proletariat will do that. And they're already doing that or whatever. And it's like, are they though? Yeah. I found, though, at the same time that that their view of proletarians was also kind of dim in that they really do blame the workers' movement in this kind of way that makes really no separation between the workers' movement and the state actors that responded to it. Thesis 23, they say that we don't need to blame bureaucrats for the integration of unions into the structural regulation of the economy and that quote, the workers themselves accept their role as labor power in capitalism in that they do not call wage labor into question and therefore its representation in the form of the union. But if this is the case, why have so many workers pretty much hated unions for a few decades now, and then they've only regained some popularity now that they're virtually invisible in our lives as far as their kind of 20th century degraded form goes? Sure. I mean, the text thinks that there's a higher form of class struggle that comes from resistance to representation in trade unions. But it pairs this ultra-lefty point of view, right, with the insistence that trade unions kind of prevent the worst-case scenario. Again, this has to be colored by decades of, you know, employers' offensive. Boilerplate, like, listen, defensive struggles, you know, honestly shut up about that. (laughs) Which... I run into this problem a lot when I'm reading the communizers. Like, there are more consistent ones, like endnotes and theory communists tend to be more consistent, but not in ways that I think are they're great sometimes. Like, <laughs> like, is it more inconsistent to kind of look back to this glory days, the 1970s, where workers were essentially striking like against their unions, taking that as the high point of class consciousness, and then to, you know, kind of stand unions a little bit. I think in the sort of dialogue between like workers and rank and file, you kind of miss the fact that workers' movements, like anything else, are political, and there are differing like perspectives and factions and stuff, like kind of vying for control. You know, so yeah, it is possible, and there are structural incentives in place that can have more conservative aspects win out, and things get reintegrated into capitalism. But, I mean, I think it's crazy to say that's just, like, a foregone conclusion. Because if you say that, like, the structure, underlying like structural elements in capitalism will determine those outcomes anyway, then there's really no way out. Unless everyone just, like, starts just right. communizing shit right now, baby, you know? That's kind of what I'm trying to get at. That, like, there are more consistent communizers, but are they better for that consistency? Like, this position, I kind of agree with more, even if I think there's a problem. You mm-hmm. know? Like, it is clearly better for workers to be able to take trade unions for granted and then be kind of resentful of official representation and try to exert it themselves than to be either totally, you know, lining up behind the hegemonic, you know, union bureaucracy or to be in the position we're at now where a union is like a sci-fi concept. Yeah. Look, I think the 70s represent the death throes of unions in a strong way. And not only that, I think that workers end up leaving them because they are smart enough to know that these are no longer vehicles for their interests as kind of just, you know, unions become glorified HR firms and they still are today. And I don't know that that is really 
in anything but a kind of short-term sliver of workers' interests. Is that a claim you really want to make, though? That, like, the people who, like, stayed and, like, fought for their unions were stupid? You know what I mean? I don't think they're stupid. I think that you see isolated militancy because something that used to be useful is being destroyed, but the, the very isolation of that militancy from the rest of society, I mean, it just... It's not a moral question, but it can't take hold. I mean, yeah, if, if it's trending in a downward direction, you know. Like, I imagine there were probably militants before the high points of unionization where things were on the uptick, you know. Is there commitment, you know. You could say that in retrospect. The relevancy of unions to workers' struggles really depends on the year. Uh, you know, unions were very interesting in the 19th century, early 20th century. The kind of claims that you're making here are defensible on a certain level, but I think in order to be defensible, you have to essentially accept the rationality of the post-war social democratic like compromise. And in order to continue making your case, you have to basically show how, you know, in the 1970s, international capital like was able to outmaneuver these, these compromises. You know, pretty standard narrative, right? But you have to be able to point to the at least medium-term rationality. And I don't want to say long-term, because long-term is, you know, full emancipation communism, right? But it wasn't exactly short-termism. There were some gains for a while. And then it stops working. I just don't know. I mean, like, let's go back to the fundamental crisis of socialism, where it starts. 1914, the German Social Democrats vote for war credits, Right. Did the workers' movement vote, vote for war credits? I mean, mm-hmm. did, the av- did the average SPD supporter necessarily, who owned a gun and thought that following a communist party was a good idea, did that person necessarily support you know, World War I? There's probably a range of reactions. I mean, I'm sure a lot of them probably did. Yeah. And then, but a lot of them were probably against it. It's political. <laughs> Right. Like, I understand that there are these, like, political flashpoints. And for a lot of these situations, you know, the potential of communism was really on the table. It wasn't just a puppet of Russian or Chinese foreign policy. It wasn't just a weird, like, sect lit. It was a real material possibility in ways that, you know, would affect your rationality payoff matrix or whatever. But mm. by the time World War II is over, <laughs> then it just ain't it. If labor unions have an expiration date, so did that communist window. No, everyone agrees, yeah, like, probably, like, I don't know, 1909 to 1936 is kind of, like, the window, kind of the best chance that the proletariat would have in the 20th century. Yeah. And, like, it was definitively closed by the end of World War II. Mm -hmm. There is a way that the miners that were fighting Thatcher in the 80s or the air traffic controllers that were fighting Reagan, you know, like, they were defending, like, a, a higher rationality than workers could successfully, like, pull off. Because of the way that the workers' movement had gone, and it has to do with nationalism, it has to do with all those things. But you have to recognize the essential rationality of that class compact in order to explain why it falls apart, in my opinion. I just don't know that you can equate the workers' movement to its kind of so-called leadership in such a direct way. But um, I understand where you're coming from. It reminds me in a bad way of the board. (laughs) They praised the board too, and I don't. I don't like the section where they praised the board because the section where they praised the board is also 
I think the little brief touch upon, and this is such an ultra left thing that just doesn't understand what the hell Marx was talking about in Gotha and just goes, oh, it's bad. I think they're rejecting transitional kind of lower stage communist ideas as well. Yeah. In that same section. That's another big problem I have with this. I mean, because it, it, it reads like DeBoer, but I can still get something out of DeBoer because he's just mainly making a cultural critique. But this is actually trying to talk about like real class struggle, but still in these very like mm-hmm. oblique ways. No, yeah, I enjoyed DeBoer, but there's clear limits. Yeah, yeah. You know? This is, but this is trying to basically assess like the contemporary condition of like the proletariat in the 21st century. And it's like there's a paucity of like there's no real data being put here, you know? They don't seem to have a clear conception of like what the agency of the proletariat is. This is why I like that Mike Davis piece so much, you know? Like he's pulling in like actual sociology and he's actually like critically asking like, yeah, how does the proletariat develop agency? How does it develop class consciousness? Where does that come from? What's missing? You know? Like as opposed to this, which is just like – the proletariat is like this – I don't know. It's almost like this figure of virtue that exists to like discipline like left intellectual weenies or whatever. I don't know. That critique's in here too. There's so many of these critiques are alluded to but aren't like fully executed. Remember, this I guess was written what, like, like 12 years ago? And to think about how in 12 years the level of like debate around these things mm-hmm. has improved – that something like Mike Davis's book, the lead essay, Old Gods, New Enigmas, that wouldn't have been written without basically like a flood of Marxism that's kind of like this, that had an extreme deflationary view of organizational agency, perhaps. I had like a weird reaction to this. Seeing this was like seeing... I don't know, an old partner or something where I remembered why I stopped seeing them, but also like there's something about it I, I sort of miss. There's something, you know, comfy and cozy about like a nice quaint kind of ultra left communizer, like middle position here. I don't know. This is before like the impact of the financial crisis really sets in. Mm. This is from a really different time and it's a last dispatch of what like this avant ultra left circle was thinking around that time. Yeah, it's a trip down memory lane. Yeah. To a simpler time. Right. You know? Uh, we had Texas yeah, in the White House. Right. <laughs> we had fucking good movies in the cinema. Um, vaping hadn't been invented yet. Simpler time. There was a time when, like, the multitude was a big thing, and it was kind of the end of, like, that sort of anti-globalization era. Mm-hmm. The original Antifa fucking up Starbucks. Right. Yeah, they even talk about, like, the Bonlieus. Remember that? Remember the Bonlieus discourse? I, I totally don't, actually. I had no idea what they're talking about. What the fuck was that? Those, like, French, like, suburban riots, because, like, a lot of, like, the poor youth in, like, uh, the like, 90s right. and early 2000s were concentrating the Bonlieu, so that was, like, the hood. But it's in the suburbs. I did hear about that stuff. Yeah, like, a lot of, like, French public intellectual culture, was. there's a lot of discourse around that. And... I, anyway, I find this refreshing, you know, because when you're blaming everybody except the ultra-left... You've got some decent points about everybody except the ultra-left. So obviously there's a huge blind spot. But again, I, I think that the idea that, you know, the radical left, the, like the real, quote-unquote, real radical left had nothing to do with the marriage between, you know, official worker organizations and the state, I don't think that holds water. I mean, I guess I would like some citations on that. What do you mean? If social democracy wasn't a direct expression of workers' interests, which I think in a long-term sense is clearly not true, right? Like, it can't be. It brought us here. I just wish there was more, you know, like, empirical claims, like, verification and work here, and that they just kind of 
said things in a way that's a little more straightforward and not this kind of like elliptical, you know. Like it's like basically what I said at the beginning. It's good to remember. It's nice to relive my youth pouring over <laughs> yeah. like, you know, manifestos and shit, being like, damn, you know, what's my position on the workers' movement? Yeah. No, I used to enjoy reading stuff like this a lot more than I do these days. Yeah. Did I really just say the level of debate improved when most people are on Twitter? But I think that there's like, you know, a sort of like journalish conversation that's happening and I don't know what the fuck that means really. God, that stuff's not getting anywhere, is it? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. There's definitely stuff that's come out in recent years that's like better and more penetrating than this. So it takes analyses like this as like part of the, you know, bedrock of like, okay, you know, what what are we like responding to? Everybody knows this. Mm-hmm. You know? Like everybody knows mm-hmm. the workers' movement is dead, you know. Everybody know, like not really, but you know what I mean. There's a whole like media scene or whatever around like the DSA and stuff that seems to have like popped communization a little bit as far as communization was gonna be popped, you know what I mean? From stuffy circles in Oakland or you know, Brighton or something. You know, Teen Vogue, like, communization. Yeah, okay. That's like thing. How, how many teens do you think read Teen Vogue these days? <laughs> I kind of think it's like that episode of Entourage, where Drama w- wants to get that medical marijuana hat so he could be in Tiger Beat. But that's just my only point of reference. Well, that about does it. As usual, we were a bit harsh and dismissive of our friendos here. Here's hoping our generous Bonapartist with the username Cosmoprolet finds our discussion entertaining, if nothing else. For my part, I'd like to recommend that our listeners read the excellent article called On Communization and Its Theorists by the same authors, Friends of the Classless Society. I'm especially looking forward to their upcoming intake in the latest edition of EndNotes, which should be arriving in artisanal packaging at your doorstep any day now. Not One Step Back, custom episodes like this one are made possible by Bonapartists like you. For just six easy payments of $10 a month, you too can have a high, gay, smug, seething episode of your very own. Subscribe at patreon.com slash swampsidechats. If you'd like to enable our bong-rip shenanigans in ways that cost zero dollars, show approval for our pages on social media, or leave a five-star review on your podcatcher of choice. And yes, we have reapplied to the iTunes Music Store. Let's see if we get off the blacklist. Visit our homepage at swampside.chat for more. 
Swampside Chats is part of the Emancipation Podcast Network and Research Collective. Check out our comrade podcasts at emancipation.network, where you'll find me regularly on the From Alpha to Omega reading series. Next week, we're going deep into the enemy camp on some yeehaw shit. Until then, you know the deal. Keep your boots clean. <laughs>